phrases to you. We can read your word together, and we can learn more about your word. So, Father, I pray that you bless our time. I pray, Lord, that we can set distractions out of our hearts, out of our minds. Lord, that it's not my words being heard, but it's your word. Pray, Lord, that you just bless us all as we receive your word this morning. Jesus, as, as, as Nick shared, we see another reminder of your power. I pray that we don't just see it as, as a story we know, but we can just see it with just new eyes, see it fresh, and just see your power. So Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Just as uh, before I begin, a little bit of a, of a reminder. Um, as I mentioned before, I will be going away for the, the next two weeks. Um, so if you do need anything, you can contact the church office. You can contact our elders. Um, so you'll probably get a, an answer quicker from them than, than me. Um, also, the month of August, I wanted to give you as the church just a heads up, um, as the elder board have, have been gracious to me, and we've been discussing it, that for the month of August, I'm actually going to be taking a break from, from pulpit ministry, from preaching. Um, I'll still be here um, when I'm not preaching in August. Uh, but the intention of that is to be 100% all-in, full preparation for ordination. Um, so my ordination is going to take, take place in October, the first Sunday in October. It's going to be here at the church uh, after Sunday service at 1 o'clock. And there'll be more information in the church. You are more than welcome to, to stay, and you're invited to, to see and watch, uh, and, and hopefully as I get ordained that day. So just as a heads up, you'll see a couple of guest preachers here this month of August. Um, no, I'm still here. Yes, I'm, I'm here still. I'll be down there and just not up here. Um, and that might go into the first week of September as well. But I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So if you've been sick of John, the gospel, I hope you haven't. It'll be nice because the next month we'll get a little bit of a break from it. But don't worry, we're not going to forget about it. We're going to continue it when I come back. So a little bit of a reminder and recap. Before we get into this, even in verse 1 of chapter 6, there's a time passage. About six months has taken place here between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. In that meantime, right, in that between time, a couple of key things happen. John the Baptist, who we've been studying, who we've been looking at as the, the uh, humble servant of the Lord, as Jesus would say, he... He's the greatest of all men living, but still least in the kingdom of God, right? John the Baptist has been beheaded. He was murdered by King Herod. And not only that, but Jesus sends his disciples, sends the 12 apostles away from him for a time where they go and they preach the kingdom of God, where Jesus empowers them with, with the ability to do miracles, to do signs, to, to heal people from demon oppression. Right, so John the Baptist gets beheaded. His disciples are a time, a season away from Jesus, and essentially they're living homeless. He, he tells them really what to pack and what not to bring, and they're really relying on the hospitality and the love of their fellow Jews. And in this time, in this gap, Jesus is going back up to Galilee. Right? John's Gospel has been kind of Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem, and he's back up in Galilee for, for a time continuing to do signs, miracles, wonders, all the supernatural things. And again, as we mentioned, John's gospel, compared to all the other gospels, has the least amount of miracles. There's seven. 
And we've already seen three, and today we're looking at the fourth one that John records. And each time that he records the miracle is there for a reason. There's a purpose behind it. And the purpose is to see as the reader and, and the audience, as, as you hear it, is the, pointing to who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the Messiah, he's Savior. So chapter 6 starts off with the disciples returning to Jesus from their time of being away from him in an intensive ministry setting. Right? They're doing miracles, they're preaching the kingdom, they were homeless, and they come back to Jesus. And if you like to take notes, in your notes you're going to see, number one, an interrupted sabbatical. An interrupted sabbatical. Let's read uh, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the feast, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, a few months ago, we went through the I am statements of Jesus about Advent time, Christmas time. So it was hard because I was like, do I skip this section? We, I, I kind of preached on it a few, a few months ago. But instead, I want to take a different approach and, and simply just look at the miracle, look at the context, look at the setting of, of what's happening. And the first thing we see is that we see a sabbatical is interrupted. Jesus and his 12 disciples, they withdrew to an isolated, desolate place to be alone. We know that from Mark's account of this miracle, every gospel writer has this miracle in their gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. In Mark's account, we know that this was supposed to be a time of rest, a time of sabbatical. And I would argue, maybe not for Jesus, but more so for his disciples. They spent time apart from their master, fulfilling his command to preach the kingdom of God and to do miracles. And as they were going, many people recognized them and saw them and ran ahead so that they can continue to be in Jesus' presence and the disciples' presence. Where the disciples are hoping to go on a little bit of a retreat, a little bit of a journey away from the crowd, we read the crowd followed. They couldn't escape them. And it got me thinking, you don't have to answer this question out loud. Have you ever been away on vacation and work calls? Now there's two ways you can answer this. The first is you pretend like you don't see the phone or the phone call, don't hear it, and you say, nope, I'm on vacation, this is me time, this is family time. They can, whatever problem, whatever they need, they can deal with it on their own. Or on the flip, on the flip side, maybe you answer it and you can never take time to be away because you're always on call. I would argue either one of those extremes use discernment. I'm not going to tell you what's right or what's wrong. But I know for pastors, we use a word called the sabbatical. And what that is, is it, it's an intentional time of rest from ministry. Just being honest, I'm sure most of you can relate to this. If you've ever helped out at a ministry event, at an outreach, you leave exhausted. Both physically, because usually that involves setting up tables and chairs and being outside in the heat or lifting things, but emotionally, you have to be social. You talk to people. You interact with people. Maybe spiritually. Maybe you have gospel conversations. You talk about the Bible to people. 
ministry is tiring. It's exhausting. We see from the disciples, Jesus is bringing them on a little bit of a sabbatical. And for pastors, again, this is a time to, to put ministry on hold. Not put God on hold. Put ministry and serving on hold so that you can serve your own self. In, in a sense of, you read the Bible as your devotional. Not, not read it to, ooh, that's a good sermon note. Let me write this down. But reading it for what? Personal growth. Personal relational growth towards Jesus. Every year, Stephanie and I have taken advantage of a free pastoral respite program at Silver Bay. It's up uh, off Lake George, and it's a YMCA camp. And the first year we got there, we didn't know this, but there seems to be this unwritten rule. It's, it has all ministry leaders and pastors and, and, and missionaries who are there on a sabbatical. They use it as a, as a break, as a way to unplug and escape ministry for, for a time. But I didn't know this, but there's an unwritten rule that we learned pretty quickly is you don't talk to people there. There's this huge cafeteria. It's like literally the size of this room. And there'll be maybe 10 or 15 people total. You'll have a person here, a little family here, a person in that corner, a person in that corner. And then we got our food and we're like, do we sit next to people? Or do we, like, do we, are we allowed to talk to people? Because everybody literally, uh, it's weird. They eat with their head down like this. And, and then uh, there was a time where we tried to talk to people and you get, you know, yeah, no. Like the short answer, and you're like, okay, I got the social cues. I'm going to stop talking. But something really cool, and this is a sidetrack, Something cool last year, there's actually a pastor who, who broke this rule. He sat right next to us. Him and his wife sat next to me and Stephanie, and we had Naya with us at the time, and they actually talked to us. And we interacted, and we actually hung out outside of the dining hall, outside of meals. I played frisbee golf with the guy. They did puzzles together. And it was really, I, I think that encouragement and that relationship was what God gave me. Instead of an escape and a sabbatical without talking to people, I really think God lined it up so that we would be there at the same time as this couple, and we both poured into each other and encouraged each other in our own ministries. Right, so as pastors, I know some pastors who never turn their phone off. They're always on call. And the danger with that is it takes you away from your family. Right? It takes you away from vacation. It takes you away from a time of, of rest. Even Jesus took a rest. And his rest was in the Lord. He withdrew to pray to his Father. But even the disciples needed it. And then on the flip side, I know there are pastors who say, I'm going away, for taking a sabbatical for this whole month. Don't text me. Don't, don't, don't message me. I'm going to have my phone off. And I won't say which is right or wrong. Right? Everybody's different. But what we see here is we see a sabbatical. A time of rest is being interrupted, but how does Jesus respond to the crowd? Bringing it back to John, how does Jesus respond? In Mark chapter 6, we read, When he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Matthew also adds, in this moment, he also, Jesus, heals their sick. So Jesus brings the twelve with him to an isolated, desolate place a few miles uh, south of Bethesda. And what happens is, on their way there, the crowd's following. There's f at least 5,000 men, and if you estimate, that's between 10 to 15,000, including their families and wives and children and things like that. Yet we see Jesus' response. He responds with compassion, with love. He continues to preach the gospel, preach the kingdom of God. He continues to heal them. 
Jesus throughout the Gospels, He did retreat. He did take time for Himself to be alone to communicate with God the Father. We see Him do it at the end of this section. But here we see the compassion of Jesus. When their sabbatical gets interrupted, Jesus sees the crowd not as a bother, right? not as an annoyance, not as a, oh, okay, maybe if I don't look at them, they won't see me. Okay, guys, keep, you know, Peter, keep your head down. Let's go. You know, Philip, keep your head down. We got this. Let's keep moving. No. He sees them. He loves them. He ministers to them through miracles, through healing, but also through preaching. His compassion fueled him for this. And I, I chose the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, because it just reminded me of the compassion of our Savior. In the, in the third verse, it says, Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. That's our invitation to what? Give God our burdens. He welcomes them. He wants them. We're commanded to. It doesn't bother Him. Do your friends despise and forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms He'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. You'll find a safe place there. You'll find rest, encouragement, help from the Lord. My encouragement is this. If burdens and problems are weighing you down, give them to the Lord. We're commanded to, but not only that, He wants us to. It would be selfish for us to say, God, I don't want to give you my burdens. Because when you do that, what you're saying is, uh, God, I don't want to bother you. Or you might say, this problem might be too big for you, God. I can do it on my own. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll handle it. I got this. That, that's what you're saying in a sense. So the first thing we see is an interrupted sabbatical and the compassion of Jesus. The second thing we see is we see a faith being tested or faith tested. We'll start with verse 5 again. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Something interesting, and, and you might have missed it. Jesus knew what he was going to do the whole time. He wasn't genuinely asking Philip as if he was clueless and was like, oh, look at this crowd. How are we going to feed them? Philip, do you have any ideas? You're, you're from Bethesda. Do you know where the best place to go to buy all this food would be? He doesn't ask Philip because he doesn't know the answer. It says he knows what he was going to do. But rather, I argue, he's doing, he, well, the text says that he's doing this to test, to test the faith of Philip, to test the faith of his disciples. Now, throughout the New Testament, and even in, in, in the Greek, the Greek word for test or, or even tempt, it could be translated that way, it has a wide variety, a wide range of meanings. It can mean both something positive and good, but also negative and bad. Here's what I mean by that. We know from Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews 4 that Jesus was tested throughout his ministry here on earth. He was tempted in every way that we are with sin and yet remained sinless. Also, he's tempted and tested by Satan in the wilderness. Right? That's the negative side of testing and temptation. 
But we also know that for, from James, from his letter, that the end result of a faith being tested is more faith. So if we're going to make an equation, it's faith plus trial equals matured faith or more faith. And I would argue that's the positive side of tests, of the positive sides of trials. And I always warn, I, I warn the youth group kids, be careful if you pray to God for more patience. Why? He's not going to magically give you patience, but he might put you in situations where your patience is going to be tested and your patience is going to have to grow and you're going to have to be steadfast through it. It might be painful, but the end result will be, what? Hopefully more patience. I would argue the same is here for our faith. If you pray, God, just, I need, help me, I need more faith. In one sense, you're asking God to what? Send you through a trial, but he will be there with you. But why? Because through the end result, through trials, through difficult situations, through testing, our faith matures. Our faith strengthens and grows. So right here I'd argue that Jesus saw an opportunity for his disciples to fail so that he might strengthen their faith. Philip's response to Jesus' question was a failure. He doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Jesus says, where do we buy bread? Philip, where do we go? And Philip says, Jesus, we can't even afford it. In a sense, Philip's saying, Jesus, don't worry where to buy the bread from. We can't even afford We can't pay for it. It's going to take 200 days worth of salary to pay for it. It's about eight months of hard labor. Right? Don't worry about where, Jesus. We can't do it. I would argue he probably was thinking it's impossible. Right? The numbers don't add up. We don't have this money. We can't afford it. Now we have Andrew. Andrew is also tested. From Mark's account of, the gospel, of, this, of this miracle in his gospel, we see that Jesus asks his apostles to go out and to take inventory of what food they might have. Because right? you might read this from John and say, man, look at that. Right? Andrew saw that Jesus needed food and he went out in faith and he found food. Well, he was commanded to first. But in faith, he came back with his report. In verse 9, Andrew comes back to Jesus and says, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves of bread and two fish. Something interesting, if you just study that one sentence, you, you see the insignificance or the inadequacy of what Andrew found. All he found was from, as Nick's translation said, a lad. A little boy, a child, not even a man's meal, a child's meal. And even in Jesus' time, children, there, there was this conception that children were of no use at all. They were more a burden until they were old enough to help you and help around with chores of the house and things like that. Right? As I was studying a, a few years ago when, when we, we looked at the passage of Mark where the little children come to Jesus, his disciples were shocked. Jesus, don't waste your time on these children. Like they were yelling at the children, come away from Jesus. And Jesus welcomes them. He loves the children. All right, so what we have here is a child's meal. Not only that, but there's five barley loaves. Barley loaves were a poor man's way of making bread. It was, it was, a, it was for people who were poor. And don't think, right, when you think of loaves, I think of those Italian loaves that you see at like Banker's Bakery or, or whatever sort of bagel store you might go to, like these huge loaves of bread. These loaves were about four to five inches. 
and a modern size, they were the size of a Twinkie. Right? Put that in perspective. Not loaves of bread where, okay, maybe we can you know, give each person a little bit of a crumb. Twinkies. And then not only that, but two fish. And the better translation is little fish. Think of sardine-like fish. These fishes, the only reason they were included in this meal was to season the bread, to give additional taste to the bread with a bite. To summarize, the only food that Andrew found that he went to the crowd and reported back to Jesus was the lunch of a child. The lunch of a child of a boy. And as I said, he did faithfully go back and say, Jesus, listen, we found, this is what we found. However, he says something. He says, but what are they for so many? Right? If only he stopped before that last comment. Maybe you could speculate, man, Andrew seems to have faith. Right? He might have passed the test. But again, he sees it. Jesus, this is what we found, but, but what is this? It's so insignificant in the grand scheme of this crowd. What, what are we to do? What the apostles see as a problem, and that seemingly is impossible, how do we feed this crowd? Jesus has an answer. As a reminder for us, we serve the God of the impossible. Sometimes we grow numb to the supernatural and the power of God, the power of the God we serve. The power of Jesus. Scripture is full of examples of God doing impossible things. And I'll even take it to to a simple explanation. Including taking our dead hearts and breathing life, new life into them when it comes to salvation. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 19, with man, this is impossible. His disciples are saying, Jesus, if the Pharisees, look how righteous, look how rich, look how good they are. If they can't be saved, if they can't, gain access to the kingdom of God, then who can? And what Jesus says here, he's saying with man it's impossible. He's talking about salvation. But with God, all things are possible. Paul furthermore reminds us in Philippians 3, he says, I can do all things through what? Him, Christ who gives me strength. These verses remind us of the power of Jesus, even despite our own weakness, our own helplessness. Now, we have to be careful because a lot of preachers, or I should say a lot of motivational speakers, they'll take verses like this and they'll twist it and they'll make it all about you. They'll, they'll make it, wow, look at all the things you can do. Look at, look at, you can do whatever you want. Whatever you put your mind and heart to, you can do. You can do it. They're, they're twisting it. Rather, what? The focus is on Jesus, what He does. It's His strength, His grace, His power, and our weakness. Right? Don't take these verses and twist them and make it about you. Keep the focus on Jesus, on God's power. So we see their sabbatical interrupted. We see faith tested. The third, we see the feeding of the crowd. Verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, that's just the men. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now if you notice this, 
there's some instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples even before the miracle is seen. From all the accounts of the, of, from the other Gospels of this story put together, here, here's a little bit of the, the, the pre-instructions before the bread even gets multiplied. He has them separate the group, the 5,000, into different groups and be seated on the grass. I've worked in camp ministry for years and youth ministry in years, trying to get 15 kids, 15 kids to find a partner or find a group of three. It usually takes about 20 minutes. And then I have to force them into partners because they don't know what they're doing, right? But 5,000 plus people, just think of maybe how long that might have taken the task, the daunting task from the disciples. Oh, gee, what? Okay, I got to gather them. All right, guys, come sit over here. Okay, okay, you guys are good. Okay, come sit over here, right? Jesus gives his disciples something to do. It says that Jesus took the bread, he took what was offered to him, the five loaves, two fish, he gives thanks. I know most of you have been to someone's house for dinner, right? Usually you, you, you get there, you could smell the food, Hopefully it's good, it's delicious. You're seated at the table, the food's brought out, it's on display, and then usually you say, let, let, let's pray together, right? You know, say, God, we, we thank you for this food and, and what a blessing it is, and we pray, Lord, that it will nourish our bodies, right? And, and it's not that weird because you see the food. But just think if you went to someone's house, there's no food. They told you, ah, oh, we have to go to the grocery store first. I don't even have the food here. But, but let's pray for the food before we go. It'd be a little odd, Right? You'd be like, well, what are we praying for? There's, there's nothing here. What, this is a little weird. In the same way, just thinking about the disciples, they're seeing Jesus' faith, or I should say Jesus' power. Jesus knew what he was doing. He broke the bread. He did the proper thing. He gave thanks to God his Father. He broke it, and then he gives it to the disciples, and he instructs his disciples to hand it to everybody, to go out and to distribute them. He includes his disciples in this miracle. Something in the Bible we'll see time and time again is that Jesus doesn't need anything from us. It's not like Jesus couldn't supernaturally have, have given all the crowd at once the bread in an instant. He didn't need his disciples to do this. Yet he instructs them and he invites them. He gives them something to do. And I'll argue this. It's for their joy. It's for their faith to grow and mature. It would be the same as this. None of us save souls. No matter what you do, no matter what I do, I can never make my daughter a Christian. I can never force Jesus into her heart, into her mind, and say, you, you, you got to believe, and, and I know you're going to heaven because I, I made you believe. We don't do that. Only God transforms hearts. Only God gives new life. However, we're commanded to what? Go out and preach the gospel. Go out and make disciples. So God uses us both for his glory, but also for our joy. So, so please don't think that, 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 that you're, you're needed, like Jesus needs me. I'm so important. I'm so significant that without me, Jesus, I don't know how you'd operate. I don't know how you'll do it, Jesus. I'm so, I know you need me. No, think of it the other way. In love, he chooses, he calls us for what? Our joy. He, he graciously invites us to see, even when it comes to salvation, we get to see hearts being transformed, not on the inside, but, but outwardly through baptism. Think of all the baptisms we've ever watched or, or seen or heard, or maybe yourself. It's a public event. It's a public witness, a testimony of a transformed heart. 
So again, all of these things, right? Jesus gives his disciples something to do to test and to continue to mature their faith. But what? For their joy, to serve the Lord. The next thing is we see the completeness of the miracle. As we've been going through John's gospel, I notice this is a theme. Every miracle Jesus does, there's a complete nature to it. What I mean is this, even looking at chapter 5, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, this man's been invalid. He's been on his, on, on his uh, butt or on his side, on his hips, on his stomach, on his back for 38 years. His muscles, his legs must have looked like twigs. Yet immediately when Jesus commands him to get up and to pick up his bed, immediately the man is healed, but also he's able to stand and withhold his weight and walk and celebrate and maybe he leapt for joy or danced for joy. Right? So there's this completeness in, even in this miracle. Each gospel account says that they ate, the crowd ate until they were totally satisfied. Until they were, in a sense, full. Again, this is significant because we know that this takes place towards the evening. I don't know about you, but usually after church, my stomach's growling. It's only noon, right? And I'm not hungry. This is evening, right? Hours, hours without food. This crowd's hungry. I wouldn't say, oh, oh Jesus, I'll take one little loaf of bread and I'll be good. I would imagine they probably ate a lot. Because why? It was a free meal. Might as well take advantage of it and fill my belly and get as much as I can. Again, I, I don't know if this has happened to you. There's always that awkward moment when you're at a party and there's like one last appetizer left and you're eyeballing it and you're like looking at the room and you're like, I really want that. I want it. And then for whatever reason, you're like, I, I should probably make an announcement. Hey guys, anybody want this last mozzarella stick? You know, I'll, I'll split it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to finish it off. Anybody want it? Right? There's a little bit of that awkwardness there. Not here. They ate as much as they wanted. They're, they didn't run out. They kept eating. I would say the completeness of that miracle. Not only that, but Jesus commands his disciples to get leftovers. There's 12 baskets worth of leftovers. In the ancient world, in Jesus' time, leftovers were a very rare sighting. You usually ate everything that was in front of you and didn't want to waste food. Now, the leftovers, some theologians and scholars have, have speculated that you know, maybe the 12 baskets worth of leftovers, it goes back to the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's this, it's this, this imagery and symbolism of, of God you know, never forsaking the 12 tribes. I would argue this on a more simplistic. It was enough food for each one of his disciples for the next day. We know at the end of this story, when Jesus withdraws to the mountain to be by himself, he tells the disciples to go on without him. And he meets them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when they're facing that storm. Right? But even in this miracle themselves, he feeds his disciples, who remember, they're on sabbatical, who remember, they just served the crowd. They just did more ministry. And then we have the miracle itself. I would argue this is one of the miracles of Jesus that comes the closest to ex nihilo. If you don't know what that means, ex nihilo means out of nothing. Think of how God created all. By what? Nothing. His word. He spoke it into existence. Right? In the same nature, Jesus creates food from little food, but he multiplies it. There's no way he stretched out these five little Twinkies and maybe rolled them and flattened them and sectioned them off and you know, calculated it. It didn't work that way. He created. He did a miracle. He multiplies it. And I think too, Jesus, and what we can see is that through this miracle, his disciples see, we can see that no matter what they had, no matter the insignificant offer that Andrew gave to Jesus, 
He still uses it for His glory. I think that's still true for us today. No matter what we have, if we give it over to God, He'll use it for His glory and our joy. In the front of my Bible, I, ha- I have this verse written, and I, I stumbled up, uh, upon it. It's, it's, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's from 1 Samuel. It's, it's what Samuel says when God's calling him. If we have a heart that says, Here I am, God. Use me. Use me in all my weaknesses. Why? Because it's your strength I'll rely on. It's your strength that will get me through. It's your strength that will give you glory. This means when we come across a seemingly impossible situation, we surrender it to God. We give it over to God. When our anxious thoughts creep into our minds, we trust in the peace of God. We give it to Him that His peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. When we feel like we have nothing to offer, remember how God constantly uses the weak to shame the strong, the humble to shame the proud. In the well-known hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, the chorus, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace when we're going through a hard time, when the world around us looks darkened by our problems, by our fear, by our anxiety, the song, focus, shift your gaze, shift your focus on Jesus. And because of His glory and grace, right, our problems will seem to, to, to dim and will maybe not seem as, as impossible, as, 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 as this, this deep uh, hope of despair, but rather... There might be hope. Through this miracle, John will show that God miraculously meets the needs of his people through Jesus, his son, the one who multiplied the loaves, who multiplied the fish. Even the crowd's response to seeing this miracle, it brings them back to Moses' words. Now, we read that it was, it was close to Passover, so maybe their, their hearts and their minds were, were already reflecting and getting ready to think about Passover, think about uh, their, their forefathers and, and Israel and getting out of Egypt and Moses. But for whatever reason, it brings them back to Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, which is by Moses, saying, one greater, a prophet better than me will come. And they say in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then it leads us into their intention. Number four in your notes, the crowd's intention in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Remember, this crowd is following Jesus not because of their strong faith or their firm foundation in Jesus as their Savior, Messiah, but because of the signs and wonders he was doing. We read it in the first uh, verse or two from the story. He continues to minister to the crowd. He supernaturally and miraculously feeds them. And I'll say this. The crowd was right to want to have Jesus to be their king. Right? J- just one, one second. The crowd was right with wanting Jesus to be their king. We know Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, but their motive was wrong. They wanted to dictate what their king would look like. Where Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, where he came to deliver the people from spiritual bondage, where you have John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
they wanted the Messiah to come and set up a physical, flesh and blood, physical kingdom here on earth and deliver them from their physical slavery under the Roman Empire. With Jesus as their king, they wouldn't have to worry about food. Why? Because he creates food out of nothing. With Jesus, they wouldn't have to worry about sickness or diseases or any pain. Why? Because Jesus heals. He could just give them unlimited food, heal them of every disease. They could march to Jerusalem with Jesus and overthrow the Romans. That probably is going through their head. Jesus would be our king, our ruler. We'll rally behind him. We're going to lay the golden crown on his head. Here's the problem. They took the gospel message and twisted it to meet their own selfish desire. They had no interest or desire to be freed from their spiritual slavery. Rather, only their physical, the Roman slavery. They did not have sorrow for their sin or repentant hearts. They were simply seeking Jesus for what they could get out of him. Their self-interest. And the really sad truth is, the world still does this. Some churches still do this. Some preachers do this. They come and they try to come to Jesus on their own terms. Right? Maybe they say, if you come to Jesus, he'll heal all your brokenness. He'll heal every disease you have. If you come to Jesus, he'll give you success in life. He'll make you rich. You'll get that promotion. If you come to Jesus, he'll heal you of all your emotional baggage. It has this mentality of, what can I get out of Jesus? Almost like making Jesus this genie. Instead, we're to approach Jesus on his terms. What does that look like? A repentant heart. Mourning our sin. Acknowledging him as sovereign Lord who's worthy of praise, but what? Get this, obedience. Praise and obedience. Jesus' command to follow him is a call to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross, to follow him, and to live for him. And what was Jesus' response to the crowd? The last verse. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus' response here was the same when Satan came and tempted him in the wilderness. Satan offered Jesus all the glory, all the riches, all the honor, all the praise of the world without the pain of the cross. He offered him the golden crown instead of the crown of thorns. All Jesus had to do was kneel before Satan, worship him. Here the crowd is ready to give Jesus their praise. They're ready to make him their ruler. It says by force they're going to take him and make him their king. The problem is this plan is not the will of God. It's not the will of the Father. This was not the reason why Jesus came to earth. He came to be what? Our sacrificial lamb who would be slain on the cross. He came to bear the weight of our sin and to have the full wrath of God poured out on him. He came to be our Savior and to defeat death and he has the authority to give eternal life to all who believe in him. This is why Jesus withdrew. He was humbling himself and staying in the will of God. Right? That temptation. He knew they wanted to be, make him king. Jesus still said, this is not the will of my Father. This is not why I'm here. And while studying this miracle, there are some Christian scholars, and I'll, and I'll you know, maybe use this Christian scholars, but there are also scholars 
who actually teach that Jesus did not multiply the loaves and the fish. They believe that this miracle wasn't really a miracle. But just logically, somehow they're okay and they buy into the fact that Jesus can die and be raised back to life. But they, they, they draw the line, they stop the line with Jesus didn't multiply the food. He, he couldn't do that. The extent to which a lot of these biblical, or, or I should say Bible critics will go to to remove the supernatural, to remove the miraculous from Jesus and what he's done from Scripture is crazy. They have a theory that, that maybe Jesus and his disciples, be, way before this, they found a cave. And they got all this bread, all these fishes, and they, they, all, they stored it, they stocked it in the cave. And when the crowd came, the crowd lined up, and, and like assembly line, Jesus went in the cave, and he gave it to the disciple, and they passed, and they passed, and they went through the assembly line. The issue is that is the crowd was commanded to sit, and the disciples went and delivered the food to them. Another theory is that the crowd saw the willingness of the young boy to share his meal. And it caused the whole crowd to share their food with each other. It really wasn't this crazy food miracle, but rather an ethical miracle. That, that looking at the, the generosity of this one young little boy, it led a movement in all the hearts of the people that they shared their food with each other. The problem is, the whole crowd ate. Evening, right? Late at night, the whole crowd ate until they were satisfied. And even it says the disciples kept the leftovers. Now again, if it wasn't their food and they kept the leftovers, that'd be a little rude. Right? That, hey, why are you taking my food? That, that's the, who, who has the right to these leftovers? Right? But again, just the, 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 the loops and the holes, just people trying to jump through some of these things to just disqualify Jesus' miracles and the miraculous. Instead of reading this and seeing God's power at work, seeing Jesus as the one who creates food, seeing as Jesus as the one who what? Does the impossible. Now, again, this miracle is the only miracle that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the importance of this miracle is it reveals that Jesus is sent from the one who provides our daily bread. This miracle will, will lead the crowd and lead Jesus into revealing that he is God who has come down from heaven to earth to give us eternal bread, eternal life. He'll say this later in John chapter 6. After he feeds the crowd, and they long and they, and they want more bread, and they find him again, and they, they're just begging him for bread, he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life oh sorry. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And just dwelling on that one verse, we see the satisfaction that Jesus gives us. Where he goes back to their forefathers in the wilderness of the manna. Every day they had to continually go out and get enough food for the day. But what happened the next day? They were hungry again. So they go back out and get manna for the day. And then what happened the next day? They were hungry again. They had to go back out and get food. But here we see Jesus saying, what? I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, right? If you take of, of what I'm offering, you'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty again. The total satisfaction we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And I want to encourage us, 
with just this last word. Our intentions matter. Right? Every week we've been saying, who is Jesus and what does it matter? The crowd saw Jesus as their king. Good, I see Jesus as my king, but the intention matters. They wanted Jesus for their own selfish gain, for their own selfishness. They were thinking physically, not spiritually. And as Christians, we know this, that Jesus is the King of kings, Lord and lords. He's our Savior. And throughout John's Gospel, all who come to Jesus, believe in his name, will be saved, will have life eternal. And that's the promise and the assurance of faith that we can continue to be encouraged by through the, through the Gospel of John. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we praise you this morning as our King. We praise you this morning as our Savior that you came and died on the cross in our place. That we're saved not by what we do, but what you did and your finished work on the cross. God, we, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder, Jesus, of just the satisfaction that we find in you. That you alone can fill the void, the emptiness in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we continue to always grow in our faith. That we always lean into your word, into your promises. That we can look at miracles like this and know that we serve a mighty God a God who even though was on a sabbatical with the disciples, still saw the crowd and had compassion. We serve a God who welcomes us to come before him and lay out and give our burdens to. We thank you, God, that you're patient with us, that you love us. We thank you, Lord, for the joy that it is that you use us. Even though you don't need us, you still use us. Lord, and we can give you glory and you're glorified through that. That even in our weakness, you are strong. That we don't weigh you down. God, I pray for anybody here this morning that's just struggling with their feelings, with their thoughts, with their emotions, with feeling like they're not enough. Lord, I pray that they can know that they can surrender it over to you. That you love them so much that you died on the cross you found them worthy enough that you died on the cross in love and in grace. Jesus, I pray that we can just take those feelings of inadequacy, feelings of doubt, and just have a heart that's humble, a heart that's saying, here I am, use me. Here I am, God, use me to serve you. God, we love you and we praise you. And Jesus, we just ask this all in your name. Amen.